Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps inside or outside on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill. Climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. Let's have a ball at Faneuil Hall, we love the Old Town team. Take the green line to the sicko sign, we love the Old Town team. Now we're here, we all will cheer, we love the Old Town team. Our chowders mean we like our beans, but we love the Old Town team. Welcome into the Old Town Podcast, our Red Sox pod here at The Athletic. I'm Tim McMaster, along with our Red Sox reporters, Jen McCaffrey and Chad Jennings, and a special guest this week. You've laughed at his great work on The Office, Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and The Good Place. He's also co-host of The Podcast with Joe Posnanski. It's Michael Shore. Michael, thanks for coming on. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. It's our pleasure. You can subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're not listening on The Athletic and want a subscription, go to theathletic.com slash greenmonster to save 40% off a one-year subscription. We're going to talk about your Red Sox fandom, Michael, and where the team is right now. Later in the show, we're going to compare Red Sox players to some of your TV characters as well. And we're going to draft Red Sox villains. So a lot to get to. I'm pretty sure... You were in Hartford, right, when you were growing up. So you could have gone either way, I think, right? Red Sox or Yankees. Why the Sox? Yeah, I was, well, I was actually born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, but I moved to Connecticut when I was like four. And then the town I lived in was 101 miles from Boston and like 102 miles from New York. So my town was split 50-50 Red Sox, Yankee fans. And then when I was five, we moved to Wellesley for one year. And that was the year I got into baseball. So I broke hard to the north and became a Red Sox fan, uh, which was terrible <laughs> until 2004 and then, and then became great. Uh, so yeah, I, I, uh, I was, a am like a, a, like a Schrodinger's fan. Like there's a whole other multiverse universe out there where I'm like a Yankee fan and I'm on a totally different athletic podcast right now talking about Aaron judge. <laughs> and I'm so happy that it broke the way that it did. I'm like, you, is, is baseball like the go-to sport for you? Yeah, always has been. I mean, in in recent years, I have a son now who's 12 who loves baseball, but he also loves basketball. And he sort of got me back into the NBA. I was out of the NBA for a long time. And, um, and he sort of got me back into it a few years ago. And so the NBA is catching up for me, but baseball is my first love and I think will always be my first love. I don't, you know, there's, it, I used to say that there's nothing baseball could do to make me not a baseball fan. And they're really testing that theory right now <laughs> they're really they're, they've decided to try uh to make me not a baseball fan but um but yeah it's it's my favorite sport and I think it probably always will be and I don't think though it's, it's not something that that comes up that often in your shows I don't notice it you know just like a even as a sort of in the background thing happening very often have you have you been tempted to go into that direction at all it does in the in the extreme margins it does like a, yeah. you know in the good place um there was an episode of The Good Place in the first season where the character Tahani um, discovered a list of um, the top, like the the best people in her neighborhood, the top yeah. point getters. Mm-hmm. And I put like I put David Ortiz's name in there, 
and I put I put a couple other baseball like that. So it'll it'll like sneak its way in. But I'm also yeah. aware of the fact that like it, baseball is it, it, it's funny because it's in my lifetime it's gone from America's national pastime to like like a sort of weird fringe sport that like um, that you know most people don't follow actively. Right. Um, and so I don't, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that it is alienating to try to like work baseball into a national, any kind of national conversation. So I don't really do a lot of stuff a lot because people know I love baseball. A lot of people pitch me shows about baseball. Like they'll say, I'm, you know, I'm working on a show about like a minor league team or like a whatever. And it's very hard, honestly, to figure out how you could make a show about a TV show about baseball. Um, today i don't i don't know that it it sort of carries the emotional and intellectual weight right that would that it would need to in order to like sustain an audience and pe- people try there was that show pitch on fox mm-hmm. a couple of years ago about the first woman pitcher um which was actually good i really liked the show um but i just you know if friday night lights couldn't make a large audience watch a show about football it's hard <laughs> to imagine any tv show about baseball right. kind of breaking through right now it's too bad you mentioned the uh, the Yankees and the alternate universe where you could be a Yankee fan. And there was one thing about the Yankees I wanted to bring up because you recently raised a ton of money for um, in L.A. Um, after the shutdown and everything yeah. um, for the food bank out in L.A. And part of it was that you had to do all these terrible things, including growing out the most beard and eating a hot fruit pie, mm-hmm. which some people like, but you don't. Uh, and you had to wear a Derek Jeter jersey. And he had to say things that you would hate to say. Correct. But the one thing that stood out to me, and I don't know if you did it on purpose, but I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, the Jeter jersey that you wore had the name Jeter on the back, yeah. which true Yankee fans hate. They hate the pinstripe jersey with the name on the back. So did you choose that one on purpose as a little bit of a slight to Yankee fans? No, the opposite. I chose it on purpose as a, if I'm going to do this, I have to do it uh, fully because you know, the, 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 the deal was, so I started matching, I, I said I would match donations up to a certain amount, uh, and, um, for the LA regional food bank. And very quickly it went to like, we were like, I said, I would match donations up to $50,000. And after like one second, there were $9,000 of donations. <laughs> and I got very excited. And I said, if you, okay, if, uh, if we get to 50 by the end of the day, I will shave my head. Um, terrible idea. Didn't think it through. Didn't tell my wife. Didn't, <laughs> didn't, didn't have any, but no planning went into that. And then um, a bunch of people, including a frequent podcast co-host, Brandon McCarthy, got very excited about this and started just pouring money into the fundraiser. And we hit $50,000 in an hour. And so then it became clear that my personal humiliation was the key to, to get, getting meals to <laughs> So then it, then it became right. I'll wear a Derek Jeter jersey and I'll eat a hot fruit pie because I hate hot fruit and blah 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 blah. So at the end of the day, um, it, we raised uh, we raised something like three hundred and thirty six thousand dollars, which was wonderful. Um, and but then I thought, well, now what I owe the people who donated is is maximum humiliation. So when I when I went to get the Jeter jersey, you have your choice, right? You have the pinstripes, which is the classic Yankee uh, uniform. But the pinstripes don't have names on them because they're the home uniforms. And then you have the away grays, which have the names on them. And I was like, well, the, here's the problem. I have to, it has to be pinstripes because that's the classic. I've been making fun of the pinstripes my whole life. 
uh, <laughs> and I can't, I can't not wear the, if I'm going to do this, I can't not wear pinstripes, but the whole point was to wear a Jeter Jersey. And I think the name is kind of key. So I searched and searched until I found a, an unholy, unnatural version of a Derek Jeter Jersey, which is home pinstripes with the name on them. And I was like, all right, I know that this isn't the actual Jersey, but like, this is the full Monty. If you're going the full Monty, you got to get pinstripes and you got to get the name. So I got that one. Uh, if it, Ended up irritating some Yankee fans. That's great, but I didn't do it. <laughs> I didn't do it for that reason. I did it as a, as like a, I owe it to the people who donated to be maximally humiliated in this moment. Um, right. And I now I don't know what to do with it. Like it's sitting in my closet. There's a Derek Jeter jersey in my closet. It's so <laughs> terrible. Every time I see it, I'm like, but I can't quite throw it away. I don't know what to do with it. I thought about getting a bunch of Red Sox fans to autograph it. Like Bill Simmons lives in my neighborhood. And, um, and Seth Myers is an old friend of mine from SNL. So I think I'm going to do is sign it and then have every famous Red Sox fan I know sign it and then auction it off to some weird, perverted, fetishistic Yankee fan who wants to own <laughs> a Derek Jeter jersey with a bunch of Red Sox fans' names on it. That's my, that's my theory. I don't know if that would work or not, but uh, maybe that'll be the final donation to the LA Regional Food Bank if I can pull it. Off. Maybe a Red Sox fan will buy it and burn it. Yeah, great. And you'll be off the hook. <laughs> you know what? You know what we don't talk about enough is that moment. This is it's the, the most Boston thing ever. Was when they were building the new Yankee Stadium, and one of the construction workers yeah. was a Red Sox fan. He, he buried an Ortiz jersey in one of the like uh, cornerstones under the uh, pavement, which is brilliant. Brilliant move, hilarious, wonderful move. But he, in classic Boston fashion, he couldn't not brag about it to his friends instantly. <laughs> as as it happened, right. and so they found out about it and just dug it up and got rid of it. Like it's so. That is the most Boston thing ever. Like just wait one year, wait a month, wait any amount of time, and then it'll be impossible for them to get rid of it. But he just couldn't. He couldn't not tell everyone that he had done it, and then they just <laughs> instantly found it and dug it up and got rid of it. <laughs> Chad, isn't there like in the uh, in the tunnels down near the clubhouse? Like, I feel like there's a spot. People have said that's where he buried it. Well, they f- I feel like I've been I, I've been shown the spot. They found it though. They found. I remember. Yeah. I remember the video of them just like jackhammering the the, <laughs> the cement and just ripping, going. <laughs> it's like he's a he's like a criminal mastermind who immediately starts bragging about all the banks he's robbed without everyone finding out, and it gets caught and sent to jail. <laughs> <laughs> Very typical Boston. Oh, we have to. We have to ask you about as a the Boston LA dynamic of uh, getting getting Mookie and Price uh, in the in the Dodgers trade and what that's like having them around the corner, but obviously not uh, not in Boston anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's not really anything because there's no baseball. Um, when it happened, it really broke my heart. Like losing Mookie Betts broke my heart in a, into a, in a way that like my heart hadn't been broken by the Red Sox in <clears throat> since 2003. Um, and I was sort of comforted by like, well, at least, I mean, I go to, you know, eight or 12 Dodger games a year. So at least I can watch them play. That was sort of what I, that was how I rationalized it. Um, but I just, you know, the, the, we're seeing this a little bit now with the endless debate about how the season is going to be shaped and how much money the owners are going to pay the players and everything. And, um, and, and also things like, you know, the decisions from some of the owners to to back off of their payroll commitments to minor leaguers and stuff like that. I mean, these guys are like, you know, the Nationals owner and the A's owner, these guys are multi, multi-billionaires and they're like trimming 
you know, like trimming the fat from these guys making 400 bucks a, a, a month or a week or whatever. And it was, I, I couldn't help but feel like that. Like, I know how much money John Henry has. Everybody does. I know how much right. money Tom Warner has. Everybody does. And so all of the arguments about payroll flexibility just felt utterly flat to me. I just, like, the, if you own a baseball team and you draft Mookie Betts, you just pay Mookie Betts. You just pay him. You pay him whatever he wants. Like, the, what is the point? of having payroll flexibility if the guys who you draft on your team who you who are generational players and also like after world series games sneak out to food banks and like help feed the homeless without telling anyone by the way like why do you what do you what are you after what do you want out of the world except to have that guy wearing your uniform every year until he retires and then raising his number into the rafters. I just don't, I couldn't understand it then. I don't understand it now. I don't care if he said he was going to leave. If he said he was going to leave, he's going to leave, but you keep him on your team as long as you can. And then you make him an offer that makes him the highest paid, pay him more than Trout. Who cares? Like, I, I just don't, the, the weird, like if I own a baseball team, my goal would be to break even every year. Like I would pour every amount of money that I could into the team and the stadium and the fan experience and everything else. And if I broke even, great. The value of the fran- the value of these franchises goes up inexorably every year, five to twenty-five percent. And so I the decision was just so um, inexplicable to me. Like I, I just I, I couldn't understand it then. I don't understand it now. I I wish him nothing but the best. I hope that he has a 22 year career and goes to the hall of fame. Like we all think he's going to, but um, it just bummed me out. And then price comes out here. Uh, and I think if there had been a season, I think price would have had a really good year because that stadium yeah. is got great for pitchers. Um, but like price comes out here and then they, you know, they're, they're the, the owners are monkeying with the salaries of the, uh, of the minor leaguers and, and, you know, uh, doing all sorts of, terrible stuff and then price just unilaterally says like well i'll i'll give him money <laughs> like I'll, I'll pay i'll pay them and it's like well that guy's awesome too like you know <laughs> i it, it's it just stinks man i it's a it's one of the worst one of the many ways that baseball seems actively to be sabotaging the experience of being a baseball fan in america is stuff like that where it's like we have to get under this arbitrary payroll number and so we're going to trade probably the best player the team has had since Ted Williams. Um, and, and ultimately a guy whose ceiling is higher than Ted Williams, frankly, because he plays incredible defense. Um, the idea of getting rid of that guy, just, I don't care what the argument is. It doesn't make sense and never will. I wondered at the time, if, if you don't attach him to price, when you make the move, even if you go to the Dodgers and say, look, let's do Mookie for Jeter Downs and Alex Verdugo right now. And at least then you can try to sell it as, you know, we couldn't, it, it's not a money situation. We have the money to pay Mookie, but we, we know he's not going to sign. So let's get something back for him before we can try to get him in free agency or whatever. And then just agree on the side with the Dodgers, like, okay. And in like a week we'll do price for Connor Wong. Like don't, I just thought it was odd to make it so clear that the Mookie deal was a financial thing. Like if you could have separated them a little bit, just so you could at least make the case that, Mm-hmm. We, you know, maybe you don't like the move, but you can make the case that you traded Mookie for a pure baseball reason. And by yeah. tying it to price, it just made it so clear that this was a money situation. 
I guess I'm you're you're just talking about optics though, right? It's yeah, oh like yeah, it's, that, oh totally, yeah. totally. But I mean you're gonna um, do it anyway. Like it just <laughs> it just made the optics so much worse, I thought. Yeah, you're probably right, although the end result is the same, which is that yeah. you're trading that guy. And it's just yeah. like don't don't trade that guy. Just don't trade him. I like I I, I think ultimately long term for the franchise, you have a better case to make your fans if you say we did everything we possibly could he just didn't want to play here and if that's right. true like you, you yes of course competitively you lose out because you don't get anything back for him but you don't you don't infuriate everyone who who, who watches the team and roots for the team and i feel like that's a trade I, as an owner i would make i would rather lose a guy and not get anything back for him than infuriate 92 percent of the people who follow the team except for like the extreme sociopathic uh number crunching nerds who are who who don't see any um tangible value in in like the fan experience you know i don't know right sorry jen i interrupted you yeah. what were we gonna say no that's all right i was gonna say not to mention just the timing of all of it all with you know, cora obviously having just been yeah. dismissed and the investigation still ongoing and like renicky hadn't even like really been named the interim manager and it was just the weirdest timing at the very start of spring training and it was like what the hell is happening to this team i know i know and and like the, at some point at, at some like deep 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 level um boston sports uh, will always destroy you. Like they just the, somehow or another. That I mean, I think that maybe that's true. I could just say sports will destroy you. Like if you're if you're if your fandom is at the level where the, it where things that happen to your team can emotionally affect you, then you'll you'll get hurt. Like you will. It's like it's like anything else. They, they will hurt you. But Boston seems to have this particular way of <laughs> of just like. Just when you in, yeah. in, in the in a in a time when I mean I was at Game Five of the of the 2018 World Series, and uh, and I was there with my son and two of my two of my best friends who were both Red Sox fans, and we we saw something in person that we all grew up never thinking we would see, which is our team celebrating in the last game of the season, and even though it was the fourth time that had happened in 14 years, it still. Like uh, I, I achieved some kind of like transcendence as a fan. Like I, that, that moment. And I've seen that. I saw the Patriots win the Super Bowl. I saw the Malcolm Butler Super Bowl. Like I, you know, I've, I've been there for every one of these big moments, not actually physically there for all of them, but I've watched all these amazing moments in Boston sports history since 2001 when the Patriots beat the Rams. And I still was like, Oh my God, there's a new level of happiness that I can achieve. I didn't think that was possible. And I achieved it. And I was hugging my son and crying, and like we, we stuck around for an hour and just took a million identical pictures of the scoreboard at Dodger <laughs> Stadium, and 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 I really felt like sports has nothing left to offer me. That was that was the feeling I had when I drove home. We drove home and played Dirty Water really loudly as we like drove out of the parking lot, and I had this feeling of like I am I am complete. I have achieved Nirvana. I have there's nothing that sports can give me anymore. And, and then, and then like a, you know, 18 months later or whatever, this happens. And, uh, and it, it, it reminded me that like, even when things are as good as they can possibly be in your sports fandom, like sports in general and Boston sports specifically will figure out a way 
to put like an acupuncture needle into a spot in your body that it's not supposed to go <laughs> and just cause just cause you like irritation and pain and sadness and um and it, it's a bummer it just it's just like I, I i wish that sports didn't have this ability to do that to me but they clearly do and uh that you know i wrote about this for um for Grantland, what back when Grantland existed, um, in the year that Tito was fired, uh, is like there are these old narratives in Boston sports that that rear their ugly heads every once in a while, and they all amount to the same thing, which is like um, it, it just doesn't work here. Like it just doesn't work. The the, the this is a non functioning, malfunctioning system. Uh, the common the toxic combination of the city, the history, the fans, the management, all of that stuff. Um, eventually, it blows up. And I think I ultimately would rather I would rather have what we have as Red Sox fans, which is a, a wild roller coaster mixture of extreme highs and extreme lows, than I would if I were than what like Brewers fans have or or you know um, Reds fans or something, which is just a sort of like you just kind of float along and your team is never really that relevant and there's not really high highs and there's not really low lows. I would rather have what we have. But when you have what we have, it it you have to understand that your heart is going to be smashed <laughs> by a hammer every every ten years or so, uh, and you know so so be it. I guess there's nothing neat to do about it but stop watching baseball, which isn't an option for me. Well, and, and somewhere in there is where you somewhere in there is this experience that led you to come up with the constant reboots because you've been through the, Oh, this is the bad place. (laughs) That's right. Oh, I remember this. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's right. (laughs) Brother. Mike, I wanted to tell you my first job out of college was at the Scranton times tribune in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And, and I went there in Oh three, January of Oh three. So sort of right as you guys are starting I had never heard of Scranton. I didn't know anything about it. And the next thing I know, like the biggest show on television is happening in Scranton. Joe Biden is the vice president. It was like, all of a sudden I was at like the center of the world (laughs) because, (laughs) because you made that the center of your show. Um, I'm sure you've been asked this, but where did that, why in the world were you, was Michael Scott running a paper factory in, or in Scranton, Pennsylvania of all places? Well, the, you know, the British show took place in a town called Slough, um, which is a sort is like the Scranton of England. It's sort of a, <laughs> it's sort of a, a working class town. It's a, like a mining town and it doesn't have a lot of um, distinct qualities. Um, it's, th- that was the point of the of the British show. Right? right. It was like this is any town UK. And so Greg Daniels, who adapted it. Um, thought about a lot of different places. I think you know there was um, you could probably have substituted a number of different cities for Scranton. You could have put it in Akron, Ohio, or or um, you know yeah. you know some. If you watch the show, there were other branches in other cities, and they were all Scranton adjacent, right? It was like <laughs> sure, it was Buffalo and Albany, and um, you know Utica. Like- Utica, right? Um, Stanford, Connecticut. Stanford, Stanford yeah. was the only one that was like sort of high upper class. Upper class. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, I think he chose Scranton because it's a place that a lot of people have heard of, but no one's ever been there. Um, right. In g- generally speaking, and it was really perfect. Like the more that we did research into the town, and eventually went to the town. Um, the more sort of perfect it was as just a city. It's just a place. It's just a place that exists in America. It has enough people so that it's not 
it's not tiny and out of and completely nowheresville. It's not 4,000 people in Wyoming, but it's also not, and, and it has like a little bit of a history. Like there were mines there and there, yeah. you know, Joe Biden was born there and whatever, but, um, but it's not, it's just, it's just a stand in for an American city, which was important to him. He wanted it to be, Greg wanted it to be any kind of office in any kind of town in America, because the, the, the point of the show was to replicate or to put on display a kind of experience that people have everywhere. So, right. um, yeah, so that's, he chose it and it was a great choice. What, the, the most famous I have ever been in my life was when there was an office convention and sort of festival in Scranton and a bunch of the writers and cast went to Scranton um, for the day. And there was like this whole, there were a whole series of events and everything. And we, we were, <laughs> I was with uh, Lee Eisenberg and Gene Stupnitsky, who were two of the writers on the show. And we were in like the bus on the way to the hotel. And I played the character Mose on The Office, right. who was Dwight, Dwight Schrute's cousin. And uh, they were like, you're going to get recognized. And I was like, no, I'm not. Like, this, you've got to be out of your mind. I've been on the show for like a total of a 41 seconds over three years or whatever. And they're like, no, you're totally going to get recognized. And I was like, I will bet you $100 that no one recognizes me. We got to the hotel, got off the bus. There was a crowd of 20 people at the hotel at like 11 o'clock at night waiting for us. And the second I stepped off the bus, they started screaming Moe's and ran after me and asked me for my autograph. <laughs> so, so thank you, Scranton, for, for making me feel like a, a famous person for one day. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I remember what? that convention really well. That was such a... Uh, Were that, you there at the I, time? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. I, I remember just, it was neat to see the, how much you guys as writers had fun with the with the town right i mean you, you you could tell you all went to great lengths to to really include things that were there i mean i have been drunk on a boat on lake wall and paul pack like right. <laughs> you know what i mean it was it, <laughs> I, and I, the town that's part of why the town embraced it so much like you guys really made it be in scranton it wasn't just a name it was that was yeah. the town. well that's that's the fun of stuff like that right is like you know the details matter um, that you, the, I think people who watch TV shows can feel, can sense authenticity and they can sense inauthenticity. And sure. that, that was the, when we were there, like we were working, we went, we drove, Greg sent us off. Greg is very, very, um, studious in his approach to television. And he sent us off on like missions. He was like, I wrote an, I wrote an episode in the, in the second season where Michael Scott bought a condo and he was like, go find where that condo is. Go find out where it would go find it where the place where it would really be and like take pictures and look around and get a sense of like what his neighborhood is like. And so we drove around till we found a relatively new condo development. And like, you know, I got out and I took a bunch of pictures and I like it was sort of up on a, a little bit of a hill. And I was like, all right, here's his view looking out his window. And um, and, you know, here's the here's how it's, you know, only uh, one mile to this high school or whatever. And, you know, that stuff all gets sort of like filed away in your brain somewhere. And so when you're writing the show, you have this, you're not just making it up out of nowhere. You have a sense of where the characters really live and what it's like to really be there. And I think that, you know, that might not be something that actually tangibly comes through all the time directly, but it indirectly sort of affects the way that the show is written. And I think, um, I think that stuff matters, you know. So that so there's a love affair there with Scranton and yourself, but but what about Jacksonville? Because I feel like <laughs> Jacksonville has been painted a little a little more negatively a little on the good place. 
defend that claim. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, the character um, Jason Mendoza on The Good Place was from Jacksonville. And when, you know, he, the the story point in the show is that when he first arrives, he's he, he doesn't talk and he is living uh, falsely as a Buddhist monk who has taken a vow of silence. And um, and then it's revealed, of course, that he's just this total dirtbag aspiring DJ. And so we're like, all right, where is he from? So Florida is the obvious choice. Um, Eleanor Shellstrop, Kristen Bell's character, was from Arizona. So we wanted it to not be anywhere near her. Right. So Florida is the obvious choice. And then it was like, all right, well, like, if you look at a lot of the cities in Florida, they all suggest one thing or another. Like Miami suggests something um, because Miami's a famous city and it's very international. And Orlando is all about Disney World. And, and, and Joe Mandy, one of the writers on the show, was like, it's got to be Jacksonville. And he told this story of doing stand-up. He's a stand-up uh, in Jacksonville. And he's like, it's the weirdest place I've ever been. I think by area, it's like the second, first or second largest metropolitan area in the country. Uh, it is almost entirely like below sea level. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's basically a swamp. Um, and it, I remember when the Super Bowl was in Jacksonville, I, I had this vague memory of all of the NFL reporters saying like, this is not a place a Super Bowl should be. Like just no one had a good time. And the more we just like poked around and learned about it, the cra- it's so crazy. It's just a crazy, crazy city. And uh, it struck us as very, very funny and very real to have someone be from a place like Jacksonville and have an enormous amount of pride uh, about being from Jacksonville. And just because people have a lot of pride in their hometown. We saw that in Scranton. Like everybody in Scranton is very psyched about Scranton. Like and because people like to like where they're from. So Jacksonville just sort of took over. And then we were like poking around doing research and it was like, oh, Leonard Skinner is from Jacksonville. Well, there you go. There. <laughs> so, so that's why Jason went to Leonard Skinner High School, yeah. um, which was which was a, a bunch of uh, tugboats tied together in a junkyard. <laughs> right. and, um, so, you know, it just it be- and then Joe Mandy again was uh, had written, I think, and was on the set for the the episode where all of this stuff was revealed about Jason and he had, um, there was a, a story point where he, Jason Mendoza was sort of like waxing philosophical about his life and about his future and what mattered to him and everything. And it was sort of a, a nice monologue about his hopes and dreams. And at the end of it, he was like, he, he had this rival DJ. And at the end of it, he was like, okay, uh, that's, that's uh, his speedboat. Hey, hand me the thing that makes, me, that makes it blow up. And his buddy gives him a Molotov cocktail and he lights it and throws it and blows up the speedboat. And Joe Mandy had... <laughs> had um, Manny Jacinto yell Bortles as he threw the <laughs> Molotov cocktail. That wasn't scripted. Joe just made him do that. And then that was like, well, now now, now it's all about Blake Bortles. Right. Now, like, <laughs> so we, just, we worked in a Bortles reference whenever we could. The funniest thing about it actually is that uh, a, a very large number of people based on various tweets we've seen didn't know that Blake Bortles was a real person. Like they thought we were making oh, wow. like he, he like no because it's not like he's a right. famous guy really outside NFL circles and so when the when the Jaguars went on their run and got all the way to the AFC Championship game there were all these people going like today I basically today I learned that Blake Bortles is a real person <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's pretty great also I have a um, the Jaguars social media team were great and couldn't believe that there was a TV show that was mentioning them all the time and their 
semi-obscure quarterback all the time on network television. So I have in my office like a Blake Bortles autographed jersey and a Blake Bortles autographed football. And like, well, I had one sort of baseball adjacent question about your career, which is that when I was probably 24, 25, I'm working in Scranton and I start reading this blog called Fire Joe Morgan. And, you know, I'm just starting in sports writing and I'm you know, trying to sort of figure out how this is all going to go. And I remember two thoughts at the time, which was one, like whoever is doing this is like calling out a lot of our nonsense and sort of really <laughs> making me sort of rethink away writing's going. And then also, you know, this was before blogs were quite a big thing. So there was still that stereotype of just like a guy sitting in his mom's basement. And I was like, these guys are better than a lot of us like this sucks like i so i when you guys they're actual writers when it came out that that's who was that it was you and your people doing that fire joe morgan i remember feeling such a sense of relief of like oh <laughs> thank god they're like they're actually really good like this isn't just like i'm, I'm not my career is not gonna be overtaken by just like anyone i'm I just wondering that the, the the process of going through that was there so that had to be one fun to do but also just a good outlet for that that interest of yours into sports and to have a way yeah. to, to stay involved with it yeah it was i mean it was um you know I, i've told the story many times i apologize to anyone listening if you've heard this already but like we that that blog started because two friends of mine alan yang um who later created the show master of none with aziz ansari and wrote on parks and rec and good place with me and is a director and is super talented and then dave king who is also a writer has written on a bunch of shows i've worked on and and other shows um he, dave king at one point in 2003 i think or maybe before that sent it must have been before that he sent an, an email uh to me and alan and a couple other guys and said you know we text each other and and email each other about how much we hate sports announcing and sports writing so much we should just start a blog for ourselves where we can just post stuff just for each other. And it'll save a lot of time. And it's like, it'll be less <laughs> annoying to get, to get emails from each other about whatever Tim McCarver said that week. So it, that's, that was the genesis of it. it. There was no attempt to make it public at all. It was just us writing uh, to, to clear our heads of, of things that we hated and were annoyed by. And then Will Leach was running Deadspin at the time and he started, he found it, I don't know how. I've never asked him, I should ask him. But he started linking to it from Deadspin and suddenly our viewership, our, our readership went from eight people a day to like several thousand people a day and then got as high, I don't know, it got as high as like 50,000 people a day or something. And it was hilarious. And But then there was this weird thing where, um, you know, we were anonymous uh, on the site in part for, for two reasons. One is we put zero thought into it about <laughs> what we were doing. <laughs> and, and the other reason was that we were all professional writers and we, I didn't want, we were cursing a lot and being really hard on, on, um, you know, on Tim McCarver and, uh, and Joe Morgan and people like that. And, and we just, I didn't want any like, um, blowback. Uh, I didn't want the, sh the a show that one of us worked on or the network that right. we worked for to like get beat, to get called out or or uh, attacked by an, by like ESPN or something. So then, our, when our readership went through the roof, <laughs> meaning <laughs> tens of thousands of people, not billions of people, but when it when it suddenly became public, then then I started to have this extreme guilt because I feel like internet anonymity is a bad thing. Generally speaking, it's what leads to a lot of abuse 
abuse and um, and unpleasantness. And so then we were I, we had this sort of like meeting, uh, and we're like we have, think we like the the accused have a right to face their accusers at some level. And so we were like we should just tell people who we are. So we told people who we were, and then that made another. There was another huge jump in our readership because <laughs> suddenly it was like the guy in the office and the guy who writes for South Park and whatever, and this guy. You know, then then it, that it seemed like we did it to increase our readership when really we were doing it to try to like cool things down. So it was a very weird experience. The whole thing was very weird, but super fun. I mean, it, it you know, it it really was like a it was at the moment in time when like Moneyball was changing everybody's perspectives yeah. on what worked and what was good and what was bad. And, and so what you had was this very entrenched media landscape of sort of old school guys who were still writing in the old way. And then a whole bunch of Rob Nyers and people like that who were writing about this new thing. And there was maximal friction between the two camps. And we were the ding dongs who just wrote dumb jokes about it. Like we just called people out and said, this is stupid and here's why. Um, so I'm, I'm so like happy that anyone read it and that it mattered to anyone. Uh, I didn't mean to, we didn't mean to scare you. <laughs> well, no, it was just, it, I, I just appreciated that it was that. Hold on, there, there was a sense of like, oh, good, like these the guys who are writing this. It's not just I, I'm not in a profession that just anyone can do. It's like these guys sure. are actually really good. But it also, like you brought up the, the the statistical analysis stuff. There was a, I think stuff like that eased that 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 transition of, of baseball writers in that direction because initially it was sort of very militant on both sides right it was like the people who are into advanced analytics it was just everything was sort of like talking down and it, it, it that felt like a barrier to try to get somebody to kind of explain it to you and get there and the other side is just so entrenched in what they've always known and so once it became this sort of like silly thing to like not start to go over that direction I, yeah. I feel like that made it easier and made it uh, made sort of some baseball writing go that way i hope so i guess um i mean there you know, our only goal was to like, was to make jokes really. Um, and to point, point out like easily disprovable things, um, should be easily disproved, um, or disproven. I don't know which one is correct, but the, we used to say on that blog, um, and to each other that are like, our work will be done when it, on a national TV broadcast, instead of showing batting average home runs and RBI, it shows like OPS, you know, yeah. um, war and uh, whatever. And like, that's actually happened. That's the crazy thing. Like the, 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 the side of it, this, this never happens in America in any dimension, but the side that favored like science and reason beat the side that favored intangibles and, uh, and mystical qualities like, a, right. a, or, or at least favor tradition, you might say. And that's amazing. Like that, it, it, it the transformation is complete. And we we ultimately stopped working on the blog for two reasons. One, because we all I, I was starting Parks and Recreation, and Alan was going to come write on it with me. And I knew how much time uh, it, that writing on it for that blog sucked out of my daily life, which was way too much to justify it. <laughs> uh, and so I was like, well, I can't I can't do this when we can't do this when we have this new project that we're working on. But also we felt like we were at, we hit a point where we were just repeating ourselves. Like we weren't, there was no new right. information being relayed from us. There was no, there was the, that we had made the same point a thousand times. And so, you know, and, and you could see even then back in 2005, 
2005 or whenever it was, or 2007, I think maybe, um, you could see that the world was shifting and the shift is now complete. Like you don't see you, the, the average local broadcast of a baseball team, forget about national, the average local broadcast talks way more about, um, you know, uh, about whip than it does about pitcher wins. And yeah, the, sure. the guys who are winning national awards, the guys who win the Cy Young, you know, DeGrom winning the Cy Young with a losing record and, and Felix Hernandez won that Cy Young when he was 12 and 11 or whatever it was like, that like the the that transition is complete. The the base baseball correctly adopted the new method of of um, analyzing a player's worth, and that's amazing. I I can't I I still kind of can't believe that that happened, but I'm happy it did. <laughs> <laughs> they got that right. If they could only get the economics right, we'd be on our way. Um, that's right. So we wanted to play. We have a couple things for you. Uh, we we have a game, and then we're going to do a draft because we know on the podcast. With Joe, you do a draft every week. So we're going to draft Red Sox villains or players, people, whoever hated by Red Sox fans over the year. But before we get to that, we have some comparisons, uh, your characters to the Red Sox. So I will give credit to Chad, who came up with the majority of these, but we'll throw them out. We just kind of want your your take on them. How do we do? Chad, you want to start it off? Well, I, I first thought Jim and Pam, this like such an adorable partnership that just seems to work right away i for if there's a red Sox of that i mean is it like a is it like manny and ortiz is it like <laughs> theo and tito like who is the just the couple that just they need to be together and and you'd love seeing them as a pair well um i guess it depends on what era of Jim and Pam you're talking about because Jim and Pam <laughs> Jim and Pam were this sort of um these sort of slightly star-crossed lovers th- whose relationship was very delicate it was like a little gossamer spider web um that that glinted in the sunlight um and it, you know it didn't work at first because uh Pam was with Roy and because Jim had a little self-esteem problem and so did Pam and um and so like it it wasn't like an immediate uh sort of you know a brilliant partnership it was like a they danced around each other for a long time and then once they were together then they were they were sort of off and running so I maybe Manny and and Manny and and Ortiz like the cuteness of Manny and Ortiz in the in the later years I think mimicked the cuteness of Jim and Pam <laughs> a little bit but it, but it doesn't quite the, the analogy breaks down a little bit in the in the initial Jim and Pam right. era so you know I I feel like um the the I think there's a cuteness there was an essential cuteness about about Manny and and Ortiz that uh that maybe you could say is a little bit analogous to the cuteness of Jim and Pam. So I'll, I'll, I'll give it a half. I'll give it a half credit. <laughs> I'll take it. That works. If we uh, so if we shift to Parks and Rec and we're looking at Leslie Nope and always wants to do the right thing and like really earnest and just uh, leader and kind of that type of person, we were thinking like Xander and kind of his uh, his like sort of his his leadership and enthusiasm and like just kind of earnestness that he always seems to project on. He signed the team friendly deal also, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could see that. I mean, there's a there's a little Leslie Nope in, in Mookie too. I would say yeah. uh, in the like like just keep keep grinding, keep going. Like you know, big smile on your face. Do a million 
million different things, try to help everybody all the time, you know, um, I can, yeah, but I get Xander's Xander. I mean, Xander did the Pedroia thing, which is to say like, this is where I want to be. I'll take less money kind of thing, which is a sort of Leslie Nopey, I think kind of thing to do. Um, I can see that. Yeah. It's unsurprisingly, these aren't um, exact analogies. (laughs) No, (laughs) it's not going to be a total match every time, but um but I like the I like the idea behind that. Yeah, really, as long as you don't just say that's terrible. I think we'll, we'll be pretty happy with this. Um, all right. The next one, Michael, the demon from The Good Place, who uh, obviously starts the if I'm assuming most people have seen it, but starts as everybody thinking that he's good. And then it realized that he's a demon. And then he kind of comes to the light and helps everybody out. So it's a redemption story. So David Price 2018 playoffs and and i guess josh beckett maybe too but i think david price is the the closest one here yeah or john lackey oh yeah i was thinking i still haven't forgiven lackey for the the dark years (laughs) so uh playoff hero though world series hero john lackey um yeah that that's pretty good i mean it yeah starts off with like a um and a savior role right goes through a sort of like weird dark time where he's at odds with everyone around him and then has a sort of redemptive run. The 2018 David Price and the 2013 John Lackey are 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 both pretty good for that, I think. Like that Lackey's um you know, or JD Drew, maybe, <laughs> maybe JD, JD Drew. Drew. <laughs> yeah. For the for the Grand Slam in the uh, 2000 what was it 2007, right? Yeah. yeah. Um yeah, those there's a, that's a the the if you if you define the Michael the Demon story as shows up as a savior goes through a, a fallow period of badness and then has a redemptive moment at the end like there's a lot of Boston uh, sports heroes who probably follow that trajectory because the city just beats the crap out of people when they show up and then uh, you know if the stars align they they find some kind of redemption um, but yeah Price and Lackey I'm I'm on board for that. You know who I had? I had J.D. Drew as one of your characters. I have him as Jerry Gergich because he's not that bad. Like everybody, <laughs> I feel like he gets destroyed all the time. But like, yeah. he was fine. He was pretty That's steady. Good. He kind of, he had his moments that were pretty good. He had the grand slam in the playoffs. I but- still think one of the greatest, um, one of the greatest Boston media moments of all time was when Theo went on EEI, I think, and launched into that spontaneous and eloquent defense of jd drew who was just absolutely being raked over the coals and it was like and it was it was that frictional moment that we were just talking about of like the the guys who were attacking jd drew were like he hits fifth in the lineup he should have more rbis or whatever and theo's thing was like that's not why we're paying him like we're paying him for elite defense in a very tough position in this stadium and we're paying him for his on base average and we're paying him for like the like the, the skills that he is putting on display are not the skills that like fill up the stat sheet but they're but they're there and they're measurable and you're just he basically said like you're looking at the wrong things and like i remember hearing him do that in his classic sort of like ivy league theo epstein kind of steady measured like not going to fly off the handle on boston sports soccer radio way and it was incredibly inspiring. Like it was just like, and and I I made a mental note to never get upset about JD Drew after that because even though I was on his side already, Theo's side, like his his actual breakdown of of how Drew was was contributing to the team was so was so 
like reassuring and and steady that like uh you know you're right and he's not he he is he was jerry gergish he was the guy that everybody <laughs> screamed at for no reason uh but then if you like actually squinted you were like well he's, he's kind of a good guy <laughs> he's just stuffing envelopes all day there's nothing wrong with that yeah, yeah he's doing do his job man he's yeah. he's uh he's fine don't pick on him <laughs> Well, we kind of we kind of touched on this earlier, but I had at one point the uh, the Bobby Valentine year as your Eleanor Shellstrop. Oh, this is the bad place over it. Like, like just when you think everything's you've hit so many lows and like oh things are sometimes bad and it goes up and down and then it's like oh no it could be oh this is this is this is what hell's like now yeah. I see. I would I would extend that a little to back into 2011 like the end of 2011, the fried chicken and beer video right. games era, that September when they blew the lead, um, the Adrian Gonzalez team, uh, the Beckett, the Beckett problem, all that stuff like that. That's like the worst it's been. It had been since the eighties probably like that. And that, that's when I wrote that piece for Grantland about like, why does this always have to happen this way? Like, why does it always seem that this team will figure, you're out of way even in the wake of two world series championships in the last decade that suddenly it's like oh this is a completely dysfunctional awful miserable place to play and nobody wants to be here and it sucks um yeah that was that uh, that was definitely the bad place that uh, uh, in the in the modern era no question um and that's what makes 2013 all the more amazing is that like they pulled out of that they pulled out of the valentine um era so quickly post marathon uh bombing and ga- like that, of all of the championships that this team has won, that is my favorite. Like I, that surpassed 2004 for me, um, because and, and in part because it was like we're not going to sink into another 86 years of misery after this terrible experience. This is going to be the team is like is is well managed enough and well run enough to um, to survive something like that. Uh, but yeah, man, that was awful. God, that was so awful. Well, Even though- maybe that maybe that whole 2013 team is your Leslie Nope. Like there's just good yeah. there. Like it's all just you know it's all just a lot of guys pulling together to over it. Yeah, it or maybe it's just Johnny Gomes. Maybe he's, maybe he's <laughs> Leslie Nope. That's a story when PV showed up and Gomes is like, "Hey man, you got to pick out your duck boat." You guys have heard that, I'm sure, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. The, it's the best. So he was like, and PV was like, "Is he serious?" And everyone's like, "Yep, he's been." And uh, Brandon McCarthy told me that. Um, when Gomes signed, Brandon McCarthy texted me and said the Red Sox just won the World Series. And remind you, this is after a year wow. in which they finished last in the division. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, why is the fourth outfielder uh, going to – and he's like, he's, he's the best. He's the best guy. Everybody loves him. He keeps clubhouses together. And then I read this story that spring training uh, where people would come into the clubhouse in spring training – and they would go, hey, Johnny, how's it going? And he would go, one day closer to the parade. <laughs> like in, in March of 2013, yeah. after a last place finish. And I, so maybe he's Leslie Nope. Maybe he's the eternal <laughs> optimist that, uh, that, that, uh, that yeah. is the only thing between that team and utter oblivion. <laughs> uh, our, our last one here, um, we had Ben Wyatt um, as kind of like a Steve Pierce because he bounced around a lot uh, and he had like jobs before rising to greatness in the end. And I like it. Sort of, sort of Steve Pierce, uh, Ben Wyatt adjacent. Like Steve said. Pierce's um, Steve Pierce's postseason run is, uh, yeah, like if if in the last era of Parks and Rec, Ben Wyatt like becomes the city manager of the town, ends up running for Congress and winning, 
creates a nerdy board game that kind of becomes like a cult <laughs> classic and takes off. Like he, he had like a 20 year sort of run of obscurity that led to like a 20 year run of like in- extreme success. Uh, so yeah, that's a, I, I'm on board for that one. That's great. <laughs> so what, watching Steve Pierce receive his MVP trophy after the world series is one of the weirdest moments of my <laughs> life. Like <laughs> it's really crazy. So yeah, great. I'm on that. That's a, that's a home run. That's a, that's a good one to end on. As if there weren't enough problems in the world right now, did you know that 75% of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated? We are suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. It doesn't have to be this way. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day long. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com slash athletic. That's drinkhydrant.com slash athletic for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com slash athletic. <laughs> All right. So so we're going to do this draft. Uh, Michael, you give the number one selection because you're our guest. Um, I actually didn't think this through if we should make this like a serpentine draft where you pick twice at the end. I think we just kind of take turns and go through it. Um, so my random selection is Michael's going to go first, Jen second, Chad's third, and then I'll go last. Um, so we're talking Red Sox villains. This, so this is anybody. It can be a, an opposing player. It can be a Red Sox player, it, a former Red Sox player. It can be anything that drives Red Sox fans nuts over the years. Um, and you get to pick basically your favorite, if not the the one that is the uh, the most recognized around baseball but i think you can kind of go with your your favorite villain well man um i'm tempted to just pick jeter because he's jeter but i think i'll go with aaron boone as my number one pick um the the boone home run was the last moment of pure agony in in red sox fandom like it was it was the because it was the 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 last terrible thing that happened before the run of of success and happiness it so to me it's like the, it's the it's the it's the lowest i've ever felt like it I, i've never it was it, i felt lower after the boone home run than i did after buckner um after the 99 uh playoffs after the nomar trade uh any at any at any moment like i, I I think that that's the saddest I have ever been to be a Red Sox fan. And the the combination of in Yankee Stadium, Game 7, off of Wakefield, who I loved, um, the the crowd going bananas, all that's all everything about it was so, so, so awful that um, I, I think, you know, ultimately, who made me feel wor- bad more times? Then Aaron Boone, a lot of people, Jeter and Bernie Williams and Paul O'Neill and and Alfonso Soriano and everyone, everyone on that team made me feel bad more times than he did. But the depth of the of the sadness post Boone home run uh, and and the sort of secret backstory 
that he was also, you know, this ended up being fine, but that he was the centerpiece of the A-Rod deal once the A-Rod deal fell apart yeah. with the Red Sox. That was like, like he like came out of nowhere, hit that home run, and then was flipped for A-Rod like that. That the combination of those um, ingredients made for the most toxic stew. So uh, it, he's not um, he's not the most frequent offender, but I think the depth of my hatred for him in that moment and and the depth of my sadness because of what he did in that moment is deeper and thicker and more awful than any sadness or hatred I've felt for anyone. Yeah, I had, I had Boone number one on my board, and it was just yeah. as much because of A-Rod as the, the home run, really. Just to, <laughs> to injure yourself playing basketball in the offseason is just kind oh. of the, the bad luck thing that adds to a villain. And then now that he's the manager, he's got potential to just kind of ratchet it up to a whole new level if the Yankees manage to win a World Series with him in charge. So That's I right. had him number one, too. Yeah, there's, still, there's, still some, there's still some prospect status to him. Like now that he's mad, <laughs> yeah, he, could. he hasn't hit his it's ceiling. Still, yeah, there's <laughs> still more damage to be done. Um, so I was gonna go. Uh, my first first pick was gonna be a Rod. Uh, I just feel like I couldn't uh, overlook the various uh, ways that he's hurt the uh, the the Red Sox over the years. Uh, whether it was with obviously the trade and all that drama, or uh, just the a Rod Veritech fight, or, or like the Bronson Royal swap, or just over the years, so many different, uh, so many different things that kind of he was involved in, and that was that made him like prime suspect number one when it came to to Red Sox uh, fans hating, ha- hating him so much. Um, so yeah, that was kind of where my mind went when I went for my first one. Let me ask you this though. I mean, look, I hate A Rod. Everybody hates A Rod, uh, at least as a player, but. To me, the reason that he isn't like my number one is like the I feel like we won the Veritech fight. Yeah. Because even though the team went five and five in the next 10 games, they did then finish that season on, you know, on a crazy run and almost caught the Yankees. Also, he was caught for the Arroyo thing. Like if, if the Arroyo thing hadn't gone the right way, he would maybe be my number one because it was so blatant and because it would have like they, the Yankees would have won that game and they would have won that series if, if if the umps hadn't ruled correctly but the fact that he was caught and then embarrassed and there's that famous shot of him like holding up his hands and then like mimicking the running motion <laughs> yeah. that he claims he was doing or whatever and uh that that to me that's why he doesn't quite achieve that elite status as the most hated guy it's because it didn't it didn't break right for them when he did stuff like that like he 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 did stuff like that but then it but then we won. So I don't know. I that it's I'm I'm caught between like an an obvious and straightforward uh, hatred of the guy as a player, uh, but also the fact that like the, those events actually broke our way for the first time in in a hundred years. It, it sort of takes the edge off for me. Do you not feel he, that? Well, he, no, I totally yeah. I kind of thought that too. Like just. He never, like, he was such an annoyance, I think, for so long for so many people. He just kind of kept being thrown into the, thrown into Red Sox fans' faces. And even though they, they sort of, like, triumphed after all of it, he was still kind of always sort of kept coming back and being the guy that was um, just being, like, a pain in the ass <laughs> for, for, for Red Sox fans, even though, even though his actions weren't necessarily hurting them one way or another, like a Boone home run directly. It was just sort of like, oh, here's this guy again. Or um, even just like coming back on the broadcast. Right. And I know Red Sox fans, you know, hate hearing him on the broadcast or uh, just kind of just having this redemption story after the whole uh, biogenesis thing uh, that he went through. And uh, just 
I think it's it's yeah, he's just kind of a thorn in people's side, I think, but yeah. uh, that's kind of where I was I was coming I from. Buy that. I was he's like a he's cartoon a... villain. Like you know he's the bad guy, but yeah. like it never really yeah. works. Like he just it's all just <laughs> bungled anyway and the good guy wins at the end. Like it's not <laughs> like how seriously can you take him as a villain? Uh, the one, so I, I think I'm the only one here who did not grow up a Red Sox fan. So I, I might have to defer to you guys a little bit on this, but one of my thoughts was Clemens. And some of it is because, like we were talking earlier about the, like comparing people to your character. He's like the anti Michael. Like Clemens shows up as the hero. And then by the end, he's just gone completely the other direction and is all in on the bad place. And so I, I wonder where, as a, as a fan, who would have seen Clemens as a hero early. Where is he now on your villain spectrum? Oh, he's high. He's way <laughs> high. Yeah. He's a, he, that's a very good number one pick, frankly, like I, the, the, there's a, there's an immense sort of combo platter of things to hate about Roger Clemens. Uh, he, first of all, he doesn't seem like he's a very good dude in general. Um, the steroid thing um, you know, leaving Boston and then starting to take steroids. Like, if you're going to take steroids, take them for our team. <laughs> like, like be, be that good for us. And then go into the Yankees. And then the, the thing that puts him over the top is the famous moment when Susan Waldman sees him in George Steinbrenner's box in, in July. And, uh, and he, like, addresses the crowd. And Susan Waldman has, a, like, a, a fainting fit. She speaks in tongues for, like, uh, two minutes and it talks about how it's the most incredible thing she's ever seen and blah, blah, blah. Like the fact that he assumed that role for, for the Yankees and then like just in, things having nothing to do with the Red Sox, like throwing the bat at, at Piazza and um, right. all that sort of like that. Yeah. He's a, he's an incredibly hateful guy uh, in, in a million different ways. And I, I think it's a totally legitimate number one choice in this draft. No question. Yeah, I had him. Uh, I would have taken him if you hadn't, Chad, uh, with my first okay. pick. So I had him there. So there's an obvious one here that I'm I'm still going to skip, even though he's probably the one that gets the most mentioned over the years is, is Bucky. But I'm going to save that one for, for someone else. I'm going to go um, with Manny Machado. We'll go the injury route um, and kind <laughs> of a, a just because, you know, you talk about Aaron Boone and what he did getting hurt and everything and Alex Rodriguez, but I just think of Manny Machado, and every time I see him now, all I picture is Dustin Pedroia lying on the ground in pain on just such a dirty slide, and and people have gone back and forth about that and and whether or not it was. To me, there's, there's not even a question about it because when you look at the replay of that slide from back in 2017, Pedroia was not trying to turn a double play. He was stretching to catch the ball from shortstop and trying to stay out of the way, and Manny comes in high with the with the spikes and somehow goes over the bag and not into the ankle of Pedroia, but all the way up into his knee. Um, it's just... I didn't like Manny Machado before that as a player, and then that just put me over the top. And that's what, and we talked about it before, you were there in 2018, Michael. Um, that's what made that final out of the World Series, to me, so extra sweet when Chris Sale comes in, and it's the Dodgers, but he's able to strike out Manny Machado and not just strike him out, but he basically spins him into a corkscrew um, yeah. and just makes him look terrible. So I'll go with Manny Machado here for for basically taking a Red Sox player who did everything right, taking the, you know, committing to the team for his whole career and just shortening our 
what we had to enjoy from Dustin Pedroia instead of having maybe five more years of Dustin Pedroia basically ended in 2017. So I'll go with Manny Machado. That's a good pick. You know, the sad thing about Manny Machado is there was a series against the Orioles when he was a rookie where he, every time he came up, he doubled down the line. He doubled down the line on like 31 consecutive at bats over four days. (laughs) And I was like, who the hell is this guy? And then I started following him and he's just so good. He's so talented. He's such a great defensive player. He's like, he has like the A-Rod, the early A-Rod physique of like, he's like six three six four, like 225 and just like incredibly athletic and powerful and does everything well. And I was like, I love this guy. As a, just as a baseball fan, I love this guy. This is like a new, exciting player to watch. And then almost instantly, he just became a terrible villain, like in, in every direction, just a bad yeah. dude, like just dirty sliding and, and causing problems and every, everywhere he goes. And it's such a shame because there's a world where like, you know, where Manny Machado it, it, for his talent is like a guy you root for the way you root for like Francisco Lindor or Nolan Arenado or something. But man, oh man, that slide was garbage. That was a garbage <laughs> slide. And you're totally right. He robbed us of, of the end of Dustin Pedroia's career, which is a huge bummer. Um, I'm totally, totally support that pick. Um, all right. My second pick is, is weird. Um, cause I'm leaving Bucky Dent on, on the table and I'm leaving, uh, like David Wells and George Steinbrenner for other people. But this is very specific, but it has it has annoyed me for more than half of my life. My pick is the way that John Sterling emphasizes the word the when he says <laughs> the Yankees win. <laughs> so at the end of every Yankee game, if they win, he says like, like inning over, ball game over, Yankees win. And then he says the Yankees win. And for a long time, I have felt that the sentence the Yankees win, a true fact in those moments, you can emphasize Yankees if you want to. That would be fine. You can emphasize the word win if you want to. The one word you can't emphasize is the. The doesn't doesn't help you at all. It, it provides no additional excitement or information. You're emphasizing the word the as if there are other Yankees who might have won. It doesn't make any sense. And also, if you if you do emphasize the word the in your life, you do it the way that people who go to Ohio State emphasize it. You say, I went to the Ohio State University. Like, the only one is what you're saying. And, and you say the, you don't say the. Like, the is such a, like, guttural, sort of, like, lame sound to make with your mouth and he for some reason decided that the right way to kind of like cap off a yankee victory is not only to emphasize the one word in the three word sentence that you shouldn't ever emphasize because it doesn't do anything for you but also to emphasize it by saying the instead of the it's bananas it's one of the dumbest uh calls in any of any sportscaster in any sport He's, he's emphasizing the wrong word, and then in that word, emphasizing the letters U-G-H, which don't even exist in that word. <laughs> that's right. Yes, that's right. That's exactly what he's doing, and it drives me up the wall. And I, I have multiple times in my life, if I've been watching a Yankee game, have, have like been away from the remote and, and then hear it start to happen and like rush over to turn it off before 
and like because I it's like it is it's nails on a chalkboard to me and it and obviously like he's also announcing that the Yankees have won a baseball game which is always something that makes me sad but the way that he does it is so terrible it's such a terrible part of a uh, moment of announcing it just it make uh, like I object to it on on That's like an excellent 50 different dark number number two <laughs> I am going to have to go. You mentioned it there briefly uh, earlier. Uh, I'm going to have to go Steinbrenner. Um, just the breadth and longevity of pain that he's uh, caused fans over years um, from just taking away so many uh, so many guys that the Red Sox were pursuing with just the, the financial might that, they, that the Steinbrenners have for, for so long and the sustained success. And um, I think he just kind of, goes to a different level in terms of villainous uh, for Red Sox fans. And obviously now having, you know, the, the John Henry ownership and the money that they have, things have leveled off. But obviously for so many years, it was like, ugh, they, the Yankees are the ones with the money and the Yankees are the ones that are going to buy the victories and buy the championships. And um, yeah, so that's kind of where I went with my number two pick. There's, there's two things that need to be said anytime George Steinbrenner comes up. Number one, he was banned for life uh, from baseball. And then while he was out, um, smart people took over the team and drafted all the good players that they had in their run from 96 to, to 2000. And yet he still gets credited somehow with being the architect of those teams when he, it was literally the only reason they were able to build the team they built is because he wasn't around he was a moron that's thing number one thing number two and this is like a, a very um un uh, uh, rarely discussed aspect of what is so awful about george steinbrenner george steinbrenner had the gall and temerity to die in a year where the estate tax had been fully repealed so he was able to transfer ownership of his team to his children without them having to pay a tax penalty and I think they they probably would have figured out a way they would have gotten financing or whatever and like paid off the tax. But if he had died like like a couple years earlier or a couple years later, they at least would have had to pay like a five hundred million dollar tax on the team, which was you know worth a billion dollars even then. And the fact that he he infuriatingly died at a moment when the team was able to take that when his kids were able to take full ownership of the team without paying any taxes made it it was like this is the final this is the final coup of the steinbrenner era is that he uh he he figured out a way to to cheat essentially uh by dying that, that really <laughs> that really bummed me out like i i and i saw it i honestly saw it coming because there i was in new york at the time uh at snl and there were, were um there were rumors like way early there were rumors that he was suffering from from dementia or Alzheimer's or something like everybody kind of knew it reporters kind of stopped going to him for quotes they started going to his kids and stuff and so he was declining and I remember there being a moment where um I the 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 Bush tax plan had been put in place and in the the estate tax slowly uh sort of descended for over a long period of time and then disappeared completely for two years and I was like, I know, I know this is going to happen. I know I can see it coming. He's going to die at a moment when the team has to, has no tax penalty and it's going to drive me crazy. And then it happened. And I, it, it wasn't even like, I just sort of like nodded sadly of like, I'm sorry for his family. I'm sorry for those who loved him. It's always sad when someone passes away. There were people who were in pain and agony, but you haven't considered how full of pain and agony I am. <laughs> Why didn't you consider that? <laughs> 
sorry. Sorry to go dark. <laughs> well, and I was, I, I will, I was thinking of going this way anyway, so I will use my next pick only to continue making a similar point. I was thinking of doing Harry Frizee, even though it's a century ago and sort of who cares at this point. But I think there is something to that Frizee literally trades Babe Ruth and then trades a ton of other people to start this whole Yankees thing in the first place. And then also, so you have him as an owner, and then you have Yawkey for decades, who, you know, everyone in Boston is sort of with the Red Sox has had to wrestle with sort of the other things going on with him, the racism and all this stuff. And in comparison to that Steinbrenner feels like someone who just, he got suspended by baseball and everyone's like, eh, let him yeah. come back and he gets to still win the World Series. It's like there's, there's some element of past owners for the Red Sox I feel like the Red Sox, Red Sox fan base can't really appreciate any good from them. And, and there's probably some element of Yankee fans get to just sort of dismiss the negative things about Steinbrenner and celebrate that uh, instead of having to reckon with the negative things that happened with that ownership group. Yeah, yeah, good point. <laughs> so is the so pick you- past Red Sox owners? Is that a- Yeah, I guess. Okay. I guess. I'll take, I'll take past Red Sox owners that sort of created 86 years of not winning. <laughs> Yeah, I, had, I actually had Harry Frizee, but I think that's the move is to compare is to combine those guys together and just bad ownership for years, which is why you go eighty. If you're going to go eighty six years without winning a World Series title, it starts at the top, and it certainly did for for the Red Sox with those guys. I actually had Steinbrenner and Cashman combined, Jen, just because the money and the brains kind of became the perfect nemesis for the Red Sox. I think. You also you you can't mention past Red Sox owners without pointing out that if Tom Yawkey weren't a terrible racist, they could have had Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays on the team at the same right. time. Like, like that's yeah. it's an important thing yeah. to mention. And if he weren't an alcoholic, miserable, monstrous, racist, drunk asshole, <laughs> things might have been different. They would have won thirty five World Series. <laughs> yeah, when you yeah. actually when you when you talk about it that way, uh, Frizee is the is certainly the better human um, starting a Broadway show with by selling Babe Ruth doesn't really even register compared to the stuff Yaki yeah. did. Right, it really doesn't um, All right, my second pick, um, we're starting to get to that point where there, you know, the obvious ones aren't there, although Bucky Dent's still out there. I just feel like that, I don't know. I'm going to avoid him as well, and I'm going to go, I'm going to stick with my theme. So I went Manny Machado in the first round with the injury of Dustin Pedroia. I'm going to go Jack Hamilton with the second pick here who – through the pitch that hit Tony Canigliaro in the face in 1967. Mm-hmm. Canigliaro, as, as Red Sox fans know, was never the same, even though he came back. But he had hit 100 home runs at 22 years old, which is a Major League Baseball record, I believe still to this day. Um, and they were on that amazing season in 67, that miracle season. And then late in the year, Jack Hamilton, who was kind of who was having a great season, but was kind of known early in his career for um, not having great control of the pitch. And it, and it gets away. And he, Tony Caniglia arrow, never the same. So Jack Hamilton, as I go two for two with players injuring Red Sox. Yeah, there's a theme to your draft yeah. so far. <laughs> Which wasn't my plan coming in, but this sort of thing happens. I think the problem with... Like the the problem with Bucky Dent, which is like he's just lingering out there uh, and no one's choosing him. Maybe someone will. But, um, you know, Bucky Dent is like uh, is whatever, 42 years ago now, 40, almost 43 years ago, well, 42 years ago. And 
and like you know it was a it was a terrible moment uh, for Red Sox fans but like so much other stuff has happened since then and so much other stuff happened before then that it almost it Bucky Dent feels quaint to me as a thing to yeah. get angry about at this point it's like oh Bucky Dent that was cute when that painful moment happened like I, it's it's hard like I, I think Jack Hamilton and Manny Machado were better because like their the the harm they caused lasted longer and was more kind of intense and personal um I'm not going to take Bucky down. I hope someone does because he deserves to be uh, he deserves to be yelled at. But um, I'm going to pick a, another sort of dark horse, and maybe not the first guy you'd think of. Um, I almost picked Cotton Eye Joe, by the way, because I truly hate. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, truly, I truly hate Awful. that. It's the worst. Um, I also almost picked Utz Potato Chips because they had a billboard in the Yankee Stadium that. That's a whole other category. You could do like the wave at Fenway because it just doesn't oh, make sense yeah. with the green monster. Right. There's all sorts of fun stuff. It never stuff. really works. Um, <laughs> by the way, I almost picked Al Reyes. Uh, maybe you can pick Al Reyes, Tim, as your third pick. But the guy <laughs> I'm going to pick is Paul O'Neill. Um, Paul O'Neill uh, is the epitome of a certain kind of player who is referred to as a throwback or a uh, an, uh, an old timer or um, a, you know a gritty uh, guy gets his uniform dirty fiery temperament blah 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 it, these are all different ways of saying he's a jerk and uh he was he was a total jerk and um he he used to there, there was never ever once uh, amazingly a correct a correctly called third strike on paul o'neill never once according to paul o'neill it, it never happened every single called third strike was actually a ball and he was furious and he used to bash uh water coolers with his bat and he used to throw things and get and scream and yell and uh Basically, all of those terms applied to him were like, oh, he's a white guy. He's an angry white guy. And if he had not been white, he would have been uh, vilified. And instead, he was celebrated. And he drove me crazy, and I hated him. He also always seemed to come up with big hits and key moments against the Red Sox, although maybe that's uh, false memory. But the real reason I'm choosing Paul O'Neill, uh, besides the fact that he was just a jerk and that he was a hothead and blah, 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 is because um, when I first started dating my then-girlfriend, now-wife, um, she was out to dinner with her parents and she came back uh, and said, hey, uh, we saw a, a baseball player today uh, at dinner. He came over. Her, my, my wife's dad is Regis Philbin. And uh, so they're constantly being uh, approached by people. And yeah, this guy came up and he said he was a baseball player. And I said, what team did he play for? And she's like, I don't know. He was really handsome, though. He was really good looking. <laughs> and I was like, huh, who was it? And she was like, I don't know. He, and then she started describing him and this, like, my heart like sank down into my stomach and I was like, no, 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 please, 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 no, please. And I was like, she's like, if, if you say his name, I'll remember who it was. And I was like, was it Paul O'Neill? And she was like, yeah, Paul O'Neill. And, and, that, and to this, that was probably 1999 or maybe 2000. I'm not over it at all. Like I still, I still bring it up. I still mention it to people. I still like, I, every time I see Paul O'Neill, I'm reminded of the fact that my wife thinks he's handsome. And it, and it, it just, it like guts me. Like I'm not, I'm not, not only am I not over it, I'm not 1% more over it than I was. I mean, I couldn't tell at all. You might, <laughs> yeah. You, you might enjoy this. That when I was in New York, once I brought my parents to Yankee stadium and cause I, I used to cover the Yankees. And so I have them in the press box and we're walking through and Paul O'Neill had the broadcast that day. So he came out and I introduced him to my parents. And then, you know, afterward, you know, they leave, whatever, shakes hand. We're walking around and my mom goes, oh, that was really neat when you met that broadcaster. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I just thought it was very He's funny it. that Paul O'Neill would now be remembered by someone as 
just some yeah some color commentator on tv so he's the broadcaster to your mom and he's that handsome man for for Correct. michael's wife yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right jen final okay pick for final you. pick uh we've mentioned him a couple times when i'm going bobby valentine uh, just the awfulness of that year coming off of the awfulness of the end of 2011. Uh, obviously, Tito had been so beloved and um, done so much for Red Sox fans with the championships, and then they go they go to the Bobby Valentine row, and it was just so, so bad on so many levels. And on a, on a personal note, so I, back that year, I was, uh, it was like my first full-time job. I was covering like high schools and Cape League baseball for the Cape Cod Times, and he was like a high school player that played. Bobby Valentine was like one of the first high school players that played for the Cape in the Cape League in like the late '60s. So they had like a Bobby Valentine Day uh, on Cape Cod to like celebrate him being the Red Sox manager. So like my 22 year old job was to like chase him down and like follow him around for Bobby Valentine Day. And they started off the year terribly. And this was like one of their first off days uh, of the of the year in like late April. So there's like this town hall event and I go up to him after like fans had asked him their questions and I like introduce myself and he's like, no, 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 I'm not doing media today. This is my only off day and I'm not talking to reporters. And I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, buddy, like you don't get off days being a Red Sox, <laughs> Red Sox manager, <laughs> not to mention this is like a day celebrating you. Like I'm writing, I'm supposed to be writing this thing about how, how beloved you are down here. And obviously, uh. So I basically ended up writing a piece about how he was like ungrateful for the day, <laughs> and uh, and didn't didn't appreciate his uh, his time uh, sub being celebrated, even though he was having a, a rough start to the year. So, you, you know what's too bad about him is like the mustache thing is so wonderful, and like everyone loves the mustache thing, and so you like you you know that somewhere in there is like a is like a fun yeah. guy. You know, and then he just seems to like he right. seems to thwart his own best instincts all all the time. Like uh, that was an, that, that whole year was nothing but him like just systematically tearing apart all of the goodwill that he had in baseball piece by piece until there was nothing yeah. left. Like it's such a weird it's instinct. It's so bizarre. But like you, you, the mustache thing, you can't do that mustache thing if you're not like a fun guy. Like that's like a, you. So it's in there somewhere. It's just like it just never uh, showed itself when he was managing the Red Sox. I think Mets fans actually still, they still think yeah. fondly of him because of those times. Yeah. And obviously they, they made it to the world series with him in charge. And so uh, it's different, different franchise, but yeah, that that's good. Jen, you gave Red Sox fans one more reason to not like Bobby Valentine. So you, <laughs> we you've added it, yeah. to the villain. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Chad. Well, with, with my last pick, I'm going to take the police horse at Yankee stadium in 1996. Cause I think without that horse, I think you have no mental image of Wade Boggs playing. This is yeah, he's, that it ruins easily his erased image, from yeah. your memory. Yeah. You have it's it's just an easily forgotten thing. But then he rode on that damn horse, and and you can see that picture. You can picture that in your head right now with no difficulty. And you take that away, I think you could pretty much forget that it ever happened. That's a great pick. It's but a great, no, it's right. It's a wonderful pick. I'm I'm now I'm now jealous that you got the police horse. <laughs> <laughs> And it's amazing that they actually have gotten to the point where his number has now been retired because of the police horse. Like that's the one thing that I thought would always keep his number from from being retired was just that singular image. But 
Amazing. He's he's been forgiven and Clemens hasn't. That's he for drew sure. he drew a walk in that uh, a key walk in that uh, ninety six series right in game six. Didn't he? Did, did he score the winning run? He may have. I can't remember. But he, uh, he yeah, might he have. drew drew a key walk in that game. And uh, and I remember watching it and thinking like, oh man, that like I've seen. I know how this story ends. Like Wade Boggs draws a walk, <laughs> and then they're they're gonna win this game. That that entire World Series could be. Um, even though it has nothing to do really with the Red Sox, but the 96 world series where the Braves beat the crap out of the Yankees for two games. And you think like, Oh, they had a nice run, but don't worry. The Yankees won't, aren't going to win this. And then they come back and win four straight that launched that, that rain. And like, if it weren't for all of those guys, all the Joe Girardi's and Chad Curtis's and whoever else was a, was part of that team uh, that the Braves really uh, in, in all with all of the Braves failures of the 1990s, that's the only one that really hurts because they could have, it potentially they could have put a stop to this a lot, uh, a lot than than anyone else did than the diamond. It's an interesting point because, um, just being, being my age, I was technically alive in 78, but I have no memory of it. I was just, I was too, um, so until 96, even though the Yankees had the history over the Red Sox, um, I had never witnessed the Yankees winning it. So it, that be, that made it kind of more real as far as the, the hammer and the nail history of the Red Sox and Yankees until 2004 was, was that 96 team and having to actually witness them winning the championship. Yeah, that was awful. I'm, I'm the same way. I was three in, in, uh, in 90, in 78, which is part of partly why Bucky Dunn doesn't really matter to me, but like, right. you're right. It was, a, it was that 96 team launched the like the worst 96 to 03 is the worst era for red sox fans maybe ever right like uh watching the yankees just win every year and also like the few like the 99 year where we got to the playoffs and beat the indians and then the yankees like got 50 breaks and beat us in five like that was that was that was that was the lowest that was the lowest like seven year stretch i think probably in red sox history and i'll yeah, because they were yeah. competitive, and and that made it. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's just like they, they were right there, and it like in past years, I feel like it hadn't been as even. And the the fact that they just kept the Yankees just kept winning, even though they were so close, closely closely matched, yeah, yeah it made it that much worse. And and we had we had a certain amount of hope every year, and then you would be like, you'd go into those series and be like, we're gonna do, it, we're gonna do it, and then you'd be like, wait a second. Troy O'Leary hits fifth for this team. Like, how are we? We're going to beat the Yankees. What are we doing? <laughs> Brett Saberhagen is our number two starter. <laughs> All right, final pick. Um, this one may be controversial, but I've it's it's been it's bothered me since this whole thing began. I'm going with Wally as the final pick. Interesting. I just, the Boston Red Sox should not have a mascot. It's just terrible. Um, I get it. You know, you're you're trying to relate to the kids and make the kids. And you know what? If you want to make Wally a little, a big green guy that goes to birthday parties and parades and stuff like that, that's fine. Just keep him out of the ballpark. It's Fenway Park. It's the Boston Red Sox. We don't need Wally. And I'm glad once the game starts, we don't see Wally. We don't have like the, the Philly fanatic hanging out on the dugout uh, Wally, but Wally has always driven me nuts. I apologize to Jerry Remy and, and everyone else and all the kids out there. And I know it might be controversial, but I can't stand Wally. Wow. Hard Silence. words. That's some passion. <laughs> there you go. I don't, I can't really find the 
bile for Wally. I think Wally. Right, I think. I mean, I, I don't know. He's. I. I think all mascots are the same amount of kind of boring and annoying. But, <laughs> but uh, I don't. I. I can't quite like. I partly it's because like, the, you know, my 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 daughter like sees Wally and gets excited, and so I'm kind of like, well, it's not for me. You know, it's it's for other. I mean, right. there there is some there is some there's something objectionable about a mascot being at Fenway or associated with the team in the same way that like if they if they mechanized the scoreboard and left you would be like that's not right like right. that's not that's not what this is supposed to be and so i i understand it i can't quite i can't quite go with you on this journey i wish i could that's fair <laughs> i feel like i'm definitely um it's just something that i've always battled with i think <laughs> fine. most people we all don't. have our own journeys <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think we all wish you well on your yeah. way. Yeah, there you go. Thank I just, you. We're just not going to go down that path. And you know what? Maybe I'll meet Wally one day. And, I think and we, we have can, a uh, we can hash a things long out. piece, actually, about Wally uh, coming up on The Athletic from Steve Buckley about his, uh, his, his like, 20 years with the team. So you might... Wait, Steve Buckley cannot be a he fan wrote, of Wally. He I can't was assigned a, a story. So, I mean, you should uh, be able to look out for that in the coming... Uh, I'm not sure exactly when it's coming out, but I know it's, I know it's coming out because we... Chad and I were uh, sent photos from our editor of different looks of Wally over the years. So you can, you can, you can dig into that one. I'm going to have to talk to Buck. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that's the draft we got. Uh, We avoided Bucky Dent, which I I feel like there's a, there's some pride in that. And the fact that the Red Sox have so many villains that we can go through 12 and not get to Bucky Dent. That's pretty good. Bucky Dent, no Bucky Dent, no David Wells, who was up there for me for a while. Um, no Al Reyes, no Michael K. That would that was one that I considered. Like, yeah, we we've got plenty. We've got no and no Dan, Dan Shaughnessy. I would have thought someone would have oh, chosen yeah. Dan Shaughnessy for just for for coining <laughs> well, for coining the curse of the Bambino. Like that alone, it puts them. Jen up and there. Chad can't say Shaughnessy because they have to hang out with him. So it is it is funny though. Like the uh, the people whenever you tell people you know this is your job or whatever and people are always like oh what's Shaughnessy like because obviously he's just the most (laughs) well-known guy and been doing it for so long and you're like I know you don't want to hear this but he's actually like a really good guy (laughs) and just has helped so many young writers along the way but I can totally like understand why why you uh dislike his and and hate his uh his opinions and his his writing and his his uh his columns for the globe but uh I know that's a I think it, for me, it's really just because of the curse of the Bambino, like that book, like what that book, which every parent gave every child Red Sox fan for for 10 years, like that, that um, like he became associated with that narrative for me. And so I just like that. I'm sure he's a lovely person. I have no nothing against him personally, <laughs> but I, <laughs> but I just I that that kind of angle on the history of the Red Sox was such a uh, brought me so much pain and sadness. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our draft. Um, that's going to do it for this show. I think uh, we've kept you long enough, Michael. We really appreciate you coming on here, talking about the Red Sox a little bit and, and about your career in sports in general. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. Yeah, this was great, Michael. Thank you. You got it. All right. If you want to save 40% off a subscription to The Athletic, you can go to theathletic.com slash greenmonster. If you're listening on the app, check out the comments section. It's new. You can go in there and actually tell us what you thought of the episode. So check that out as well. Thanks to the Beantown Swing Orchestra for our theme music. And we will talk to you again down the road. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.